seated. Lord God, grant thy Holy Spirit that in thy light we may see light through Jesus Christ, our blessed Redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading, although I shall be preaching upon Ephesians 6, 17 and 18, I wish to read a little bit larger section to give you the context. So Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked." And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, says Paul, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Beloved brethren and some sisters, it is uh, always a special joy for me to be back at Twin Lakes Fellowship. You feel like my own people, and indeed you are, and it's always good to have some contact with our folk in First Presbyterian Church in Jackson where we benefited from being active for some 11 years and brought our children up, I hope, with much blessing under the ministry of that church. So we were often in Twin Lakes. I spoke to my wife about four minutes on the phone just before we came in and saying it always brings back so many pleasant uh, memories and kind of makes me miss the children a little bit when we're here, as I remember <laughs> um, some of the things they were doing when we were here. I didn't maybe miss them at that time. <laughs> well, it's good to be with you, and I hope you'll be able to hear all right from this System, let me know if you don't. I got a compliment, though. I reckon it's all right to share it from a friend of mine who's 
maybe slightly autistic. We were together in kindergarten through high school. He's a bit different, but some way smart, and he visits us, and he came to hear my preaching at Reedy Creek out from Dillon. He, we usually ask him to come when he's there, and he'd got a new pair of hearing aids uh, maybe a year ago and attended the service. And we were coming out to church, and he said, Douglas, my hearing aids worked. I could hear you, and your sermon was not as boring as usual. (laughs) Well, I believe you'll be able to hear it. I can't promise you the rest of it. Now, in this passage I read you, it's one of the great passages in Holy Scripture on spiritual warfare and armor. The Bible is nothing if not a very realistic book. It certainly, among other things, is the soldier's manual and shows us what we are up against in a fallen world. And the Apostle Paul shows that we are in the midst of a true battle against evil powers. But in no sense is it depressing or discouraging. Paul says God has set it up that by faithful, prayerful use of the spiritual weapons he has provided for us, we can win the battle in our time, in our lifetime, whatever length God gives us, and play our little part in the ongoing of the victory of God's kingdom by using these weapons that he has provided, weapons that will be extremely effective, even when used by very poor and weak and frail Christian men and women such as we are. This question of evil must be very, very important, surely, because when Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, he gave them the Lord's Prayer. And one of the major petitions of the Lord's Prayer is, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Jesus is saying that every day we've got to be praying about this struggle with evil. And the prayer is one of these supernatural Instruments that God has provided us that will make tremendous difference. Let me just say a word about why it is we have to fight. What, what is the nature of this battle? I, I would assume that the military academies in Annapolis and West Point and the rest, War College, 
they wouldn't just start with saying, here's how to protect against terrorism. But they would try to give a broader, deeper comprehension of the whole position as best they can tell of what has been going on in Islam in recent decades and so forth and so on. It would be very inadvisable to go out to fight a war and not have some intelligible grasp of what the enemy is thinking and what they're likely to do and how best you can handle it. And so the Apostle Paul, who went through many a battle, sets before us the reality of something that you and I can never be totally free from all the days of our pilgrimage on earth. There were not only pilgrims, which we are, but we're also soldiers. We could talk about terrorism. I'm I'm no expert on, on those matters and Islam, and I'm not an expert on that. But where does this battle that the church was fighting when the apostle writes this letter to the Ephesians and when Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer through Matthew and through Luke why this battle? Just say a word about that not too long. We know that God created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And it was said in Hebrew in the survey of all that God had made that it was all in Hebrew, tov ma'ov, good, very, very good. God made nothing evil. He made nothing defective. He made no malign beings. He did it wonderfully right. Beautiful. Where then does evil and ugliness, fighting, killing, disintegration and death come from then if God created things? Tov ma'ov, very good. We gather that sometime during the original creation week, we're not able to be precise, the angels themselves were created. They were created before mankind. We don't know on what day, but from the book of Job, Job 38, verse 7, it speaks of the angels as fascinating observers of at least the latter days of creation. Quote, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, they were brought into existence in order to be the choir. 
at this part of creation. Beautiful, holy creatures. God made nothing that wasn't beautiful and holy and just right. God never made demons. He made holy angels who were singing over the creation. But fairly soon thereafter, Archbishop Usher argues why he thinks it was ten days. I don't know about that. Let's not go into that. But sometime after creation week, some of the angels rebelled, turned against God, fell into sin. There was a fall in the angelic ranks. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote, of course, as you know, the wonderful Lord of the Rings trilogy, also wrote a book much less known, but very interesting, The Silmarillion. And in it, he presents the fall of a portion of the angels into their rebellious demonic state as a sour note coming in the beautiful hymn of creation. A sour note comes in. Biblically, it would appear that the leading angel called Lucifer, light bearer, became so enamored of his own beauty that he wanted to replace God and somehow led a portion of the other angels with him into this rebellion. Some of the old church fathers said passages in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28 were referring to the fall of Lucifer. I don't know if that's exactly right. It might be, but I would not wish to debate the point. However, a very sober reading of Holy Scripture does teach us about the fall of this angel known as Lucifer, later known as Satan or Accuser, and his host of demons. Jude 6 says that the fallen angels kept not their own principality, but left their proper habitation. In John 8:44, Jesus speaks of the devil as a murderer from the beginning. And 1 John 3, 8 says that the devil sins from the beginning. Paul warns Timothy not to speedily elevate a young believer as a bishop elder, lest being puffed up he fall into the condemnation of the devil. First Timothy 3.6, that was the very sin with which this now fallen being, Satan, although still most attractive in, in the form of this serpent somehow, he said to them, You shall be as gods, knowing or determining for yourself good and evil. You're being kept from a much-deserved promotion. As long as you truckle to him, I'll show you a better way. 
So pride brought down a holy angel. And many spiritual beings followed him. St. Augustine said it was one-third of all the angels. We don't know that. I don't know how many it was, but it was enough to cause us a good bit of trouble. What we are certain of is that there is an organized kingdom of evil that opposes at every turn the holy and good kingdom of God every direction you look. That is why the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, describes the spiritual armor that God has prepared for His saints to win over the powers of evil and the battles of life in every generation. And, you know, I won't reread it all, but principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, such like. Also, 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is, fleshly, visible, material, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. God did not create evil, but He did create moral beings who had the capacity to choose to love and follow him and thus be good or to turn in another direction against him and thus become evil. And the question's been raised from all the way through. Why would God have allowed first angels and then uh, mankind the capacity to obey or disobey, and hence the capacity to do evil and become evil. I don't know of an exact or easy answer, but I would say old St. Hilary of Poitiers in the year 350 A.D. in his wonderful book on the Trinity gave his good... uh, an approach to it as I've ever seen. I've read lots on it. And I still can't go beyond what St. Hilary said. He said, A puppet is not worthy of the image of God. God created the world and He put in it the human race in His own image so He could give His Son a beautiful bride. For the Son who is the image of the Father, the character of the Father, as much God as the Father is God, for Him to have a beautiful bride, this bride must have God's image. It must be true person, personality. And you cannot be a person in the image of God without this awesome power of choosing to love, to obey, or to disobey, and to sin. That is why he created angels and 
humans who function in terms of choice. It's not that God was surprised when the evil one successfully allured our first mother and then she allured our first father to eat the forbidden fruit and to fall. God wasn't surprised at that. God wasn't surprised when Lucifer himself grew prideful and jealous of God and fell and took out a bunch of the once holy angels with him who still give us trouble. Even the fall of Satan, even the sin of Adam, was somehow included in the all-encompassing plan of God. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And that includes even that of which he profoundly disapproves and which he must punish because of his holiness, namely sin and transgression of every description. Revelation 13.8 tells us that Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So before God ever made the world, we talked about the six days of creation, eternal ages before the six days of creation. The cross of Christ was in the heart of God, in the plan. If God had a remedy for sin before sin was ever committed, therefore sin is some way in the plan. And hence, there has been a malign being who successfully tempted our first parents He fairly successfully in many instances tempted Israel. Moses, Abraham, David. But he took on too much when he tempted Jesus of Nazareth. He couldn't win that one. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Now, The late Reverend William Still of Aberdeen in Scotland once did a very interesting book. I can't remember the exact title of it. It's more like a booklet, but it's remarkable. Tracing through the two lines, the seed of the woman, namely of Eve, from whom Christ comes, and the seed of the serpent, Cain, Abel, and, and so forth on down to the seed whom Paul identifies in Galatians as Christ. And there's been this struggle. It still is. Not to recognize it is to put ourselves at a serious disadvantage. Now, what we're told here in Ephesians 6, that's all, all of that's background. But Ephesians 6 gives us very, very good news. 
It's sobering to go into a battle, surely. But if it's explained to you what you're up against and you're well-equipped and well-trained, it may not be so bad, particularly when your captain is well-worthy of your highest endeavors. What I want to talk about tonight is not the defensive weaponry that God gives us, the defensive armor. He does give that. You say, why are you not talking about it? Because you don't want to stay that long. (laughs) But I'm just going to take clauses in Ephesians 6. 17 and 18 on the offensive weaponry. I'm not going into the defensive. That's very important. I'll preach on it another year if you want me to. You better let me know, though, or I'll do something else. But I would be willing. You know, the helmet of salvation, sword, the shield of faith, and that. I'm not speaking on that. That's defensive. That's important. It's necessary. No doubt you start with it. Let's assume that um, you know something about that. At least you're united to Christ. You're hidden in the wounds of Christ. Crucified with Him, raised with Him. Now, God gives to you and to me and to His church offensive weapons. And I'll get this next point. And this is what I'm trying to convince you of tonight. We don't normally look at it this way, I don't think. God gives you such effective, offensive weapons that you can begin attacking the devil and his troops and win many a victory. If it's done in God's way. The saints are given weapons so that they may go on the offensive against the evil one. That is what Jesus called the church to do in the Great Commission. It's precisely that. It's a means of taking back the world from somebody that fairly well controlled it who had no moral right over it. Just a word or two more about the principle that God gives us weapons to enable us to be offensive. To go on, I don't mean make people mad with you, that will happen but without you trying. But I mean, to go on the attack against evil and win. God expects us to do that. He calls us to do that. He enables us to do that. Think of the promise of Christ in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The idea here, the concept I believe, is not that the church is a fortress holed up behind these uh, thick and high walls and that the devil's troops will not finally be able to break down the gates and get us. No, 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 that's not the picture. It's rather that the devil's fortress where he has uh, sinners 
otherwise intelligent, educated, attractive men and women imprisoned in, in their sins and false thinking, he is not going to be able to hold out at the church with the tools of truth. With the offensive weapons God has given to the church, it's going to break down the strongholds of Satan. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. I remember when in, in, in Scripture, I believe when Rachel was going to be taken to become uh, the wife of the patriarch, her father and brother in Padanaram blessed her in these words, Be thou the mother of millions, and may thy seed possess the gates of them that hate them. Now that's the idea, possess the gates. God is giving the church and has since his victory on Calvary in that empty tomb, the offensive weapons that we may possess the gates of the vile enemy and take out his prisoners and make them obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how it was in the mission of the 70 when they came back? They were rejoicing at what the Lord had done. And Jesus says several things, but among them he says this. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. William Hendrickson makes a great deal of that, rightly so, in his commentary on Revelation, More Than Conquerors that Jesus' ministry was already making a difference to bring Satan down from his place of power. I don't understand this next thing I'm going to tell you, at least not very much. But I believe it. In the early part of the book of Job, Satan had access to the courts of God in heaven and accused this honorable man, Job. But Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven after Jesus' incarnation and then particularly his shedding of the blood blood on the cross when he spoiled principalities and powers and gave gifts to men. He was brought down. He still exists. But he has nothing like the spiritual power he once held before Christ's work. One other thing about Christ did certain things to Satan that enables us to fight him successfully. Jesus said he compares Satan to a strong man and says a strong man keeps his prisoners bound in the prison house. And aren't you, as ministers of the gospel, dealing with people that they don't know it, that are imprisoned? And Jesus said, 
you can't get them out from prison unless somebody first binds the strong man and that takes somebody that is stronger than he. Who is that? It's the strength of Israel. Lord Jesus Christ, when He came in His holy life and atoning death and bodily resurrection and outpoured Holy Spirit, He bound the strong man and He says to the church, now go in and get the prisoners out. That's that's why you got any church members. And so God in particular gives us two offensive spiritual weapons that are competent even in the hands of very weak persons, thank God, to lay low principalities and powers that we can't even begin to understand where they are, how they work, what they're like, except we see negative signs of their influence. But we can... In God's will, lay them low in the places where he has planted us. And these spiritual weapons for the attack are, number one, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the weapon of all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Sword of the Spirit, Ephesians six seventeen b and it's like in if you read Revelation one sixteen, there's a sword protruding from the mouth of this glorious risen Christ that shows up on the Isle of Patmos, and it says a sharp two edged sword came out of his mouth. It's obviously not that the risen Christ has a metallic a blade coming out of his mouth, but it's a way of saying it is the Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now this sword of the Spirit, I know that the risen Christ had it, but he puts it in the hands of his saints, of his believers in this inspired book and calls us to preach it. And it accomplishes the supernatural. It wins supernatural battles. That's precisely why he gives it to us. It's an offensive weapon. You go on the attack with it. An illustration would be how this sword works in a, in a regular worship service where lost people are in attendance. They will be in most services, I imagine. 1 Corinthians 14, 23 to 25 is speaking about why the worship service could, should be conducted in a known language rather than unknown tongues. So 1 Corinthians 14:23 if therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned 
or unbelievers, will they not say that you're mad, that if you're speaking in tongues? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. In other words, somebody's preaching the word of God. It's another human being. They had to be imperfect, but the Lord's using them. And something supernatural takes place in that service because of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, which comes out of the mouth of the risen Jesus. It's like the risen Jesus is accompanying his word, this offensive weapon, and it pierces into the heart of, of an unconcerned unbeliever. And he says, oh, I'm before God, I'm a sinner, and he sees me, I've got to get right with him. Literally sometimes falling down on the dirt or on the stone floor. And if I had time, which I don't, I could show you how Jesus used the sword of the Spirit in his, in his three temptations. And he is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, particularly chapter 6 and chapter 8. While it's a defense, I believe it's also an offense that Jesus is putting Satan to flight because he's getting ready to go through what he had to go through at Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And he said, I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? And he put Satan to flight with the word of God offensively in order to get ready for an even bigger battle. Let me say, the use of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, always requires the presence of the Holy Spirit for it to work. That is one of the beauties and powers of the theology of John Calvin, is that he wonderfully holds together both Word and Spirit. And what the Apostle Paul is saying about these two offensive weapons, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the weapon of all prayer, uh, Calvin is holding those together, and that's why his theology has such life. And I could say a good bit about the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and uh, believe very much in expository preaching. And I honestly don't think that preaching one time on Sunday is enough. It takes morning and evening. But I won't uh, seek to convince you of that today. I've got something else I want to convince you of. That may be even harder than that one. The second offensive weapon is prayer and supplication. Ephesians 6, 8. Prayer is one of the greatest weapons we have to win the battles that God calls us to. 
I remember years ago somebody wanted to argue. I was at a conference somewhere, and I don't mind arguing some. It's fine. And they weren't mean or anything, just wanted to argue some. I said, all right, go ahead. They said, you've, pray, you've said we ought to pray for lost people. There's nowhere in the Bible that you should pray for lost people. I said, have you never read the second psalm? What? I said, how about Psalm 2, verse 8? Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. God wants us to pray for the pagans, the heathen, to come to Him. And God says He will give them. And it's going to be in large part in answer to the weapon of all prayer. I want you to notice, and I mean, I hadn't read it, Psalm 2, there's not time, but verse 9 tells us that He will smash all evil, like a potter's vessel, there'll be total victory. That's Psalm 2, verse 9, but the immediately preceding verse, Psalm 2, verse 8, says, God says, pray for it, ask for it. God makes His wonderful promises and then you must pray them into execution. That's what was happening, wasn't it, in Daniel 9. Holy angel Gabriel gave these glorious promises about Israel return to, uh, to the promised land, to the holy land, and Messiah will come and these marvelous things will happen. At, of course, at great cost to Messiah. Even gives a, uh, basically 490 years from the time that the decree was issued by Cyrus down to the lifetime of Christ. And that's hard for people that reject inspiration of Scripture to deal with. But I want you to notice, I'm not going into that, I just want you to notice what Daniel did, a man after God's own heart. He didn't say, well, God said he would do it, it's fine. And no doubt he'll do it in due season. He set himself to praying and to fasting. And he takes the promises of God in the earlier parts of the Old Testament about Israel and what he would do. And pleads the promises. And the angel comes and says, yes, I will be inquired of for this thing. Now, that is what God wants us to do. He gives the promises, and it's A.W. Pink, who's eccentric in a lot of ways, but did some beautiful writing also in his book, The Life of Elijah, has a great deal of helpful matter on, and, and give it to a young Christian, Life of Elijah by Pink, a great deal of helpful matter on pleading the promises of God, turning the promises of God into prayer, not reasons for speculation, not excuse for laziness and disengagement, but you turn it into prayer. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time, which isn't terribly long, on 
going from prayer in general, which you all believe in without any doubt, to a weekly congregational prayer meeting of a Bible-believing church. That's the direction I wish to take you. Let me say in year 2009, I was, among many, one of the speakers in Geneva at the 500th birthday of John Calvin. And so I decided I would like to speak on Calvin's pastoral work, and I knew that his the session minutes or consistory minutes of the session at Geneva were being at long, long last uh, published in, in, in French, but, it, you know, it's typed out where you could read it. And starting, I believe, in 1541, and it still hadn't completely finished, but some people, including a scholar at University of Mississippi, have done a, a wonderful job in making these available. So I spent a number of weeks as I was able reading through all the minutes of the session or the consistory in Geneva uh, in Calvin's lifetime. And I found out something I'd never known. I was brought up to go to Wednesday night prayer meeting. I've always believed in it and practiced it. And I had assumed that the, our Protestant, British, and American evangelical Protestant practice of a Wednesday night prayer meeting would have gone back either to the uh, Scottish Presbyterians of the middle 17th century or maybe the evangelical awakening or the evangelical revival in England and elsewhere in the 18th century. What's wrong about that? Calvin is the one that started the midweek prayer meeting on Wednesday night. I've got it here. I'll read it all. On the 11th of November, 1541, the town council uh, ordered that there would be a prayer meeting every week on the Wednesday, and that continued to be the case. Calvin, this great man of the Word, had the spiritual insight to know that without church prayer meetings, there would not be the power of the Holy Spirit to bring unction on the Word and to drive it out into the hearts of the saints, and particularly to drive it as a sharp two-edged sword into the lives of the pagans. And so it had to be prayed through. A good bit of wonderful material has been written on the power of Protestant, and particularly Calvinist preaching in transforming northern and western Europe. But I've seen almost nothing ever written on the institution of the midweek prayer meeting in Geneva and the place that prayer played in the changing, the transforming of Europe and providing the best things 
in the modern world. I wish some bright student that wanted to do a Ph.D. and maybe knew French and Latin would do a degree research on the place of prayer and the moving forward of true Calvinism, of true evangelicalism. Well, I, you know, I got to keep moving, but I just want to say that in my own limited experience, I would say that it was in the 1950s, most of you weren't alive then, that the Protestant churches in much of America closed the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Much honor to the Southern Baptists, they held on the longest. But the Presbyterians and Methodists, for whatever reason, closed the door on the Wednesday night prayer meeting. I may talk about that in just a little bit. Of the why, although I don't really know the why, but I have one or two suggestions. I'm saying, though, since the prayer meetings were closed in the Protestant evangelical churches and we were the mainstream of the culture at one time, they were closed in the 50s. Then in the 1960s, prayer and Bible reading were taken out of the schools. In the 1970s, 1973, uh, the vile practice of abortion was legalized. The 1990s and so the perverse immoralism began to, quote, take the moral high ground. Don't you think there may be a connection between the evangelical Protestants, for whatever reason, closing the Wednesday night prayer meeting, and the culture becoming as ungodly as it did in such a relatively short period of time from the 60s onward. I realize it would be simplistic to say that didn't have prayer meetings, that's the only factor. I know there are all kinds of factors. I understand that. But I want, I want to bring this to you, the importance of spiritual causality. And that is, when you have congregational prayer meetings, even if it's a small group, It changes the dynamics of the spiritual atmosphere and the spirit of the age, as we say, in a country or in a region. You know, somebody say, I don't like a prayer meeting to somebody's aunt, sore toe, and things like that. I know, I know. Pray about all that, yeah. But you're praying down the power of the Spirit of God to rebuke evil, both in the church and in, in politics and in the government. 
civil government in the minds of the youth. How could pornography have reached the epidemic proportions it has if the evangelicals had had prayer meetings as they should have? There would have been a spiritual power to resist Satan. When we're not praying, not using the offensive weaponry, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the weapon of all prayer, you see, we're laying down, if, if we're not having the prayer meetings, we're laying down half of our weaponry. Sword of the Spirit, Word of God, yes. We've done better at that as conservative Protestants. But so many of us have thrown down to the ground as though it were of no consequence at the prayer meeting. And so the evil one has had a vacuum in which to operate and move the whole culture in a godless, indeed demonic direction. And I'm old enough to have seen it. I've never seen such a time when we needed more a return to the congregational prayer meeting than this time. And I'll, I'll close up reasonably soon, but I want to give you some words of Christ to this point and then just a few remarks from his humble servant, Calvin. Here's the main thing that I want you to get Jesus said about prayer. You can remember this one. In Luke 11, verse 13, Jesus said, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Jesus is the sovereign Savior. God is the sovereign Father. The Spirit is a sovereign person. And the sovereign Savior says you can ask the sovereign Father for the sovereign Holy Spirit and He will be given in answer to prayer. One of the major aspects of prayer on a Wednesday night is not somebody sick. Do pray about all that, of course. We're in bodies. But it is praying down the Holy Spirit on the blessing, on the preaching on Sunday, on the dealing with evil in the congregation, on the dealing with evil in the community, on, on moving things in a more godly direction, fights in families, and the Lord would come in and people lying and uh, about their own relatives, and, and you pray down the Holy Spirit to begin purging that out and dealing with such things. Well, just a word or two from Calvin on prayer, and I'm going to relate it to the prayer meeting. And let, let me say something, uh, dear brothers. And it's this. I realize that in many PCA congregations, they don't have uh, a Wednesday night prayer meeting or a prayer meeting any time of the week. I'm not saying it's got to be on Wednesday. 
You'll have to work that out. Why is it so many of our conservative, Bible-believing PCAs don't have a prayer meeting? Well, I think it might be simply that many of our younger men have never seen an example of it in their life. I doubt most of them are against it. I don't think so. But they've never seen it work or never thought it was even an issue. So I want to say this, lest you, lest you misunderstand my attitude. I wish to you know, open my heart to you. I'm not in any sense trying to criticize you if you don't yet have a prayer meeting. I'm not saying you're not spiritual. I believe the people that come to Twin Lakes are, are spiritually minded people. And you have high and noble aspirations, and you want to serve the Lord, and you're willing to repent, and you're willing to seek His face. I believe that about you. I also don't think I'm any more spiritual than you are. Maybe when I was 20 years old, I might have thought I was somewhat spiritual. I don't remember, but at age 70, I know better. So we're not trying to get anybody while they Spiritual or not, I'm taking that you are. But I believe this. I believe you would wish the highest way. I do believe that even if it requires some changes in your procedure and you go back and talking to your session about these matters, that you would do it if you thought it would please Jesus and you could pick back up one of those great offensive weapons for the attack against Satan and win. Time's about gone. I can't say much. I've had a lot of stuff here from Calvin's Teaching on Prayer, Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, Chapter 20. I will read. Two or three little passages and then we'll quit. Calvin says in 320, section 2, Nothing is promised to be expected from the Lord, which we are not also bidden to ask of Him in prayers. So true is it that we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel and which our faith has gazed upon. I want to tell you something. He says that a high view of God's sovereignty will lead you to a tremendous prayer. And if you're not praying much, it's because you have a low view of God's sovereignty. And I, I've got the passages, and you don't want to stay for me to read them, but it's, look it up. Book 3, chapter 20, section 3. I remember when I was a student 40-some years ago in Edinburgh attending a church, uh, 
Wednesday night, Saturday night, twice on Sunday and observing the Sabbath and still got my work done. Some of the, I would go one time a week to the Free Church and the other times to the Evangelical Church of Scotland, Holyrood Abbey in Edinburgh. And I remember the minister and other ministers in that expository praying movement often referring to the prayer meeting saying, prayer is the work. And they trace the spiritual principle, much prayer, much blessing, little prayer, little blessing, to James 4.2, ye have not because ye ask not. Now Calvin, who started the traditional Protestant weekly prayer meeting, did not think that private prayer rendered superfluous regular congregational prayer. Let me quote him. This is 3.20.29. Moreover, that the common prayers of the church may not be held in contempt. God of old ordained them with shining titles, especially when he called the temple the house of prayer. For by this he taught that the chief part of his worship lies in the office of prayer, and that the temple was set up like a banner for believers so that they might with one consent participate in it. Now, I really owe it to you to quit. I had some good material to give you on why I believe the congregational prayer meeting can do things that individual praying cannot, such as cover the moral lives of the leadership in that church. You know, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's the church. It takes at least two or three to have a church. Now, one person is a Christian and the shepherd never leaves a Christian. It's true. But it takes two to three or more to be the church, and therefore the church has a certain power in it's prayer meeting even more than an individual. And I go into that a, a good bit. Well, I will conclude with this little quotation from Reverend James Philip, the late James Philip of Edinburgh, who was pastor of my wife and of me for a number of years. And I believe... Ligon sat under Jim Phillips preaching, didn't you, Ligon? Yes, in his later years. Here's what he says in 1977, his Bible reading notes about why the prayer meeting is so important to back up the preaching of the Word. Sword of the Spirit and Word of God. This is Jim Phillips. Utterance is something more than eloquence. It is burning words fraught with spiritual power to change lives. This, Paul indicates, in Ephesians 6:19, comes through prayer, and a battle has to be fought with the powers of darkness before such an unction can be bestowed upon a preacher. Nor is it his battle alone. It is also the congregation's 
It lies in their hands and in their prayers for him to put the sharp cutting edge on his ministry. Who can doubt that this is the greatest need in the proclamation of the gospel today? It is prayer. Intelligent, focused, concentrated, persistent prayer that turns orthodox truth into spirit-charged, life-giving, life-giving dynamic. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, then we'll conclude with a hymn of response. I believe it's the very back of that of that uh, little booklet you've been given, Nearer, Still Nearer, Close to Thy Heart. It's at the end. <laughs>